Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Cheryl Kababa. Cheryl drives a human-centered design practice that is focused on systems thinking and evidence-based design, working on everything from robotic surgery experience design to reimagining K-12 education through service design. In her work with consultancies such as Substantial, Frog, and Adapted Path, she has worked with a diverse base of clients, including the Gates Foundation, Microsoft, IHME, and IKEA. I love IKEA. She she holds a BA in journalism and political science from Syracuse University. She's an international speaker and workshop facilitator. When she's not in the office, she can be found at the University of Washington helping educate the next generation of human-centered design and engineering students. She's also a biker, and she wants us to talk about her most recent complicated baking project, which will be very different from talking about Louis C.K. See, I was able to do it. (laughs) I can't believe you brought him back. I brought him back from our pre-conversation, and that is disgraced comedian Louis C.K. before people start writing me and telling me that I should never mention Louis (laughs) C.K. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. How are you? Thanks, Philip. I appreciate it. (laughs) I promised it. And I didn't think you'd be able to bring him back, but all right. (laughs) Biking, baking, Louis C.K. Boom. (laughs) The circle is complete. Also, some people think, when you say, like, I'm a biker, they think, like, I drive a Harley or something. No, I literally just ride like a bicycle. (laughs) So (laughs) just to clarify. (laughs) Bicycles are beautiful things. They are. You know, very early on in the book, you actually have an example using a bicycle as to how the bicycle that's used in Amsterdam was designed in a very specific way to meet the needs of the user, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, I don't know if you've been... If you've been to the Netherlands, you've seen the bikes there, which are just like, they literally call them granny bikes, Oma feats. And you're, you know, sitting up straight and they're heavy as hell. They're like, you know, steel. You can't pick them up off the ground. And they live outside because, you know, like houses are small. You're not going to be like bringing your bike inside. And you just have like a big old chain lock. And they're like the perfect bikes for the that environment. They're meant for like hauling shit. They're meant for like, you know, carrying kids, doing your grocery shopping, like just getting around. And they're perfect in that application. So I view them as like a really good example of good uh, design for user experience. And I think that's the reason they've been around for like more than a century now and have haven't really fundamentally changed in their design. I mean, there are things like gears sometimes. Sometimes there's not even gears. When I was living in the Netherlands, like my bike never had gears. It was just like single gear bike, backpedal brakes, and it's perfect for that environment. There aren't any hills, so you can have a bike that weighs like 50 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Absolutely. I, mean, I, I lived in Amsterdam for a while as well, and I was blown away by things like that. So that's why that example like leapt out at me, which is also a, a perfect time for us to mention the book, 
right? Like I read the intro and managed not to mention the book because I was so excited to get that Louis C.K. reference in there. Um, <laughs> but the book is called Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers. And I, I was just telling you, and, and I meant this very sincerely, that I love the book. It is, to me, I don't know if you if you meant it as like a reference and something that could be used I think as as like defining text for people, not just designers, but others. If that was a goal, congratulations. If it wasn't a goal, congratulations. Because um, the book does does that and a lot more. Thanks. I really appreciate it because when I was writing the book, one of the principles I was trying to adhere to was to make it to make it accessible, like make it so that I could talk about and describe systems thinking and describe methods for integrating it into your practice without it feeling like, I don't know what, over over intellectualized or way too abstract. And I wanted it to be practical too. And so, yeah, I really appreciate that because I do think for me, that was a gap that I was recognizing for myself is like as somebody who's integrated systems thinking into my design practice, I had noticed that it's there's not really texts that explain how to do that. Like, how do you do systems thinking if you already have like another job and you're not looking to be like a systems thinking, like just a systems thinking practitioner who's like, I don't know what, creating like dynamic representations of systems or something like that. I'm never going to do that because I already have a job as a designer. So how do you create a text that would somebody can like take some of these methods into like work the very next week? Yeah, I think that's a great place to start, right? In that there is something that's very practical, um, very accessible. And I'm curious in your mind, a lot of people use these terms interchangeably, systems thinking, design thinking, designing. They become not only words that are used by practitioners like yourself, but layman terms that you would see in, in other disciplines, other texts. Um, what do you think are some key distinctions in those two avenues of, of thought and practice? Okay. So design thinking is something that I've always used in my practice, like as a design strategist and researcher, it kind of drives, yeah, decision-making is sort of the philosophy behind those who are kind of working designers. So, you know, I describe it as the process that was sort of first developed by the Stanford D School, which is five parts, is empathize, define, ideate, prototype, and test. And this is an iterative process. You do it over and over again. You quickly prototype things. You always engage, you know, who your users are throughout the process. And what I recognize is like, there's some shortcomings to that process of like thinking about how to design things in the moment, especially when we're designing just like huge systems at scale, we're designing for complexity, et cetera. So this is where I wanted to combine systems thinking and design thinking in that design thinking solutions are part of the process of systems thinking. So within systems thinking, you can expand who your stakeholders are, like who are the people in the system that you are affecting? Like I do a lot of work like in education, for example, and 
you're not just designing for like how teachers and students might use a product. Let's say you're designing an ed tech product. You're also thinking about people in the different school districts. You're thinking about policymakers in education. You are thinking about parents and families. You're thinking about the political landscape. You're thinking about like the different kinds of demographics of like students and teachers. So you're having to expand who is involved and what their incentives are kind of like throughout the system, in addition to kind of designing this one thing that's meant to be used. So I think that's where systems thinking is a good intersection with design thinking is like, solving for like the things that are really complex. You know, we call them wicked problems, which was a term coined in the 70s by I think Horst Ritter when he was talking about these kind of complex problems that don't have a single singular solution and oftentimes like have a great deal of complexity in terms of like who is involved and the different layers of like potential problem solving. And I think that that's a perfect way for us to start to expand and think about these conversations because I was really like fascinated in the book that you spent time talking about some of those, what you viewed as limitations or challenges to the way we think about systems thinking and particularly as it pertains to design. And one of the, the challenges that, that typically comes up for me is the, the language that's used, right? like people being users, it, it seems like there's a sometimes a distillation where we lose the people in the process. And I, I wanted to get some of your reflections and thoughts on that. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think oftentimes when we talk about users, like if you think about the design thinking process, it's not really meant to be focused on just end users. It's also meant to be like thinking about I don't know. I think there's supposed to be a systems lens to it. But oftentimes, especially in user experience design and design for digital products, we think about the relationship between a person who we call a user and a product, which is it could be an app, it could be a service, it could be what have you. And so they end up being like, like you were saying, really, it's distilled into this, just this sort of being that has a relationship with the product. And what happens is then we're kind of just thinking about, well, what's the direct benefit of use? Like, what is that person doing? If I'm designing an app, what is that person doing when they're interacting with the app? And I sort of don't care about like the rest of what's going on with them or who they are necessarily. And I think that can be, that's like really reductive, right? Like in terms of, the nuance, especially of where people come from, who they are, and what their experiences bring to the table. And I talk about that as like, in adopting a systems thinking mindset, one way to expand kind of your thinking about not just the problem space, but you need to kind of be thinking about who your stakeholders are. And so you can't just say, hey, I'm designing like an app for students to use. And I can just like grab any student and just like see how they use this thing and learn from that. And that whole thing is like agnostic to who somebody is. Like if you're doing that and the student you're grabbing is like, I don't know, the most privileged like private school student, they go to school and like, 
a high socioeconomic, white dominant environment, like that's a very different experience than a student who goes to like an under-resourced public school. They might be from like an immigrant family. Maybe they're a multilingual learner. They're going to have like a very different experience. So like one way of just beginning to expand your thinking is like, even if you're thinking about who's using your product, you need to be thinking more broadly about the diversity of who that is. Absolutely. And, you know, education always seems like, and and I didn't actually plan on an education question, but it's kind of come up now. So yeah, I'm going to jump into it. But it, it always feels like education is one of these, like, at least in the past, I could argue longer, but at least in a technocratic way in the past, like 10 to 20 years, like education is one of those places where people want to like redesign it, right? Or, or rethink it. And I'm curious as to why it seems to be, given there is such a diversity in experience, why it is so seductive a place to be reimagined versus, versus other things. Yeah. I mean, I think everybody has like a relationship <laughs> to the field of education, whether you're a parent or a child or, you know, you're like in the U.S. at least, you're paying property taxes <laughs> to educate people's children. Everybody has an experience with it of having been a student at some point. And that like, I don't know, it just like deeply informs our opinions about what learning is and what learning should look like. And so there's just like, I think it's a field that sort of invites, I think health healthcare is another field that sort of invites outsiders to come in and be like, hey, this system is broken and like, here's the thing that's going to fix it. And sometimes it's just like some digital solution that actually, you know, doesn't do anything or it causes harm. An example that I use in the book, because I was really inspired, there's this designer, Chris Alawa, who who wrote a series of articles on Medium called Stop Designing for Africa. He talks about the One Laptop Per Child project in the early 2000s. And he said that, you know, like oftentimes people were, these people were kind of like blowing in and designing for communities for whom they didn't have much of a relationship with. And so they didn't really understand the context of things like community ownership and what have you, especially in these African economies. And I think that often times happens in the space of education is like people from the outside think like, oh, everybody in there is doing it wrong and I'm going to come in and fix it and improve what learning looks like. And I think that's such a simplistic way and non-nuanced way of looking at the space. There's a lot going on within it that, yeah, could use improvement. But I think this is where a systems lens is really useful because you can kind of see where are the actual opportunities for improvement and where they're kind of like potentially like red herrings. For example, like, you know, there's like lots of research that shows that the relationships between teachers and students are really formative in terms of like a determining factor in student success. If you have like a really good teacher and you have a good relationship with them, you're probably going to do better than if you don't. And this is something that can be, you can think about how to, I don't know, take advantage of that as an opportunity in a myriad of different ways. It doesn't have to be like designing products and services. It could actually be thinking about like things like, 
you know, teacher professional development, you can think about like the different kinds of relationships that students have with teachers. Like, how does that expand to like tutoring? How does that, how do we think about like reshaping, you know, the educational environment to emphasize like good teacher-student relationships? I think there's just, like many ways of potentially like addressing that. And it requires like a system thinking lens. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting what you had to say, paying teachers is also a good place to start, right? Like finding a way to support a wage commensurate with their work is awesome. And also not having your kid be an asshole is a great way to go <laughs> as well, right? <laughs> like that was like the funniest thing to me at the beginning of the pandemic. So many people were like, oh my God, I've now can appreciate how much work teachers do. My kid's impossible. I'm like, <laughs> Your kid's been home for like a week, right? Yeah. Like, like we've barely begun, right? But it's interesting because I try to always dig into the root causes of things, which is why I think your book is so exciting because it, it urges the, the user to really dive into that complexity, right? To use these tools to start to pull apart these wicked problems, right? And using education just as to complete thought it's interesting how so often it starts with the supposition that, oh, education is broken, right? Like we, we start off with the idea that eh, this thing isn't working. And sometimes I wonder, eh, is that true? Right? Like, to, like what's it not work? Like what specifically isn't working about it? Like I always people tell me it's broken. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. I mean, and I, I learned just fine in a public school. <laughs> I like to think. Right. It kind of got me to a lot of good places. So we weren't that bad. Um, <laughs> but now we're in this different space where it seems like the branding has worked to convince us that the education itself is by intrinsically broken. And so therefore we need to fix it. And then now here comes the design overlay. And so I'm just curious about like digging into like root causes for things using these tools. Yeah. It's funny because I, d I don't know if I actually say this in the book, but one of the ways to kind of think about systems is, you know, like it, it's always like problematic when people are like, blah, 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 the system is broken. The education system is broken. The immigration system is broken. It's like, well, it's not actually broken. It's actually working as intended. Like, and by intent, I mean, the system has dynamics within it that are reinforcing everything that's been decided to get it to work the way it is now. So in terms of education, like, so we think like testing systems are broken or what have you. The testing systems that are in place are because like certain people are incentivized to keep it in place the way it is. So really what you're thinking about, especially when you're thinking about root cause is like, where do power dynamics lie? Like who holds the most power in these systems? And how are they making decisions that reinforce I don't know, qualities like inequities within the system, like how unfair it might be and how, you know, for example, in education, how different students might have very different experiences, some much worse than others. And I think there are like easy ways to kind of like start having the conversation about root cause, because I think oftentimes, like, especially like for design practitioners, well, for anyone really, like we're really attracted to 
solving for like the symptoms at the surface. So like one of my favorite sort of systems thinking models is the iceberg diagram, because you see certain things happening as an event. This is what's visible to you. And beneath that, there's all sorts of patterns and trends. There's structures that are in place. And then at the very bottom, there are mental models. So just the way the mindsets that people hold that sort of surface in all those layers above in the iceberg. And so kind of getting to that mental model space, you can really think about, well, how do we solve for root cause? Like, how do we solve for, you know, the fact that, I don't know, I'm thinking about like, I do a lot of work in the space of like math education, like the fact that math instruction feels irrelevant to students or that the quote unquote traditional math sort of stems from this sort of like, in many ways, like white supremacist way of like kind of teaching the subject. And how do you then like kind of use that as a starting point for potential problem solving? Because these things end up getting codified into actual like infrastructure and systems like those attitudes get codified into the way assessments or testing takes place, the way students get tracked in, you know, whatever subjects. And so like those are all good places to potentially problem solve and not just like the surface area of like students are not performing well in this subject. Like how do you address it? Oh, well, maybe we'll apply some tutoring to it or something like that's you know, that's like one potential solution, but you should be working at like every layer in the iceberg. Yeah. And icebergs are very, very popular analogies, right? One of my favorite recent National Geographic covers was the plastic bag floating that looks like oh, an iceberg. Yes. Like, that's iconic, right? Like I, I so feel like good. that should have won like many things to the extent that I don't know if it did or didn't, but it should because it's, it's like locked in my brain. Right. Because um, it's, it's kind of a perfect picture. So National Geographic, kudos to you. But the iceberg is a good place to, for us to spend some time, not just because I wrote it down in my notes, but it's always good when we get to a place that's in my notes without me having to get us there. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I want to leap on this power dynamics because I think that also speaks to imagination, which is a critical part of how we start thinking through solutions, right? Like, can we imagine different worlds? And I, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. And when I read your your part about stop designing for Africa and, and all these kind of things, I always feel like the mental model that most of these designers have, which most of these people are white, right? Is like they're they're solving problems for people who can't solve their own problems, right? So I think that's one of the prevailing mental models, right? In their imaginations, they're kind of coming in with this called the savior thing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and they can envision the TED Talk and they're going to come on stage and everybody's going to clap and talk about how they built, they saved new clean water or whatever <laughs> it is, right? But it's always like in Africa, you know? And I'm like, Motherfucker, people here in America don't have clean water, right? Like Flint has not had clean water yeah. <laughs> in almost a decade. <laughs> yeah, Flint doesn't have clean water. And, you know, a lot of places where white people live don't have clean water, right? <laughs> like you can go in Kentucky, West Virginia, Alabama, like they have ringworm in Alabama. Ringworm, right. 
right? Like what's happening, right? But they, they love to spend their time thinking about places like Africa. So I'm only using that as an example to try to get to how do we wrestle with that dynamic of power and how power affects imagination? Because ultimately also leads to resources, right? Like what's getting looked at, what's getting designed for, who's getting the resources to do this work? Yeah, exactly. I think that resonates so much with me because I wrote a little bit about like designer positionality. So just thinking about who you are, your privileges, you know, like even like, are you coming from a Western hemisphere like country? Are you coming from um, advanced education? You know, like what's your racial demographic? Like what's your background? And kind of thinking about where you as a person in terms of your identities sit on the power wheel. I think the power and privilege wheel, I I refer to it in the book and it's like a really good exercise for designers because it kind of shows you where you sit and where you might sit, in fact, like in relation to those who are, you know, quote unquote, designing for. And this is like inherently problematic. It just points to kind of like the lack of representation in our discipline. And I think... um you know, there's a little bit of a dismissal in some circles about like representation. Like I remember talking to, you know, my company had partnered with like another organization to kind of work on a design project. And I remember one of the leads in that design organization saying, I was like, oh, do you know, have you done any work in this space? Like in the domain in which we were working, which was like, it was education, I think. And He was like, oh, I don't need to know anything about that. You know, like we just use like design thinking. We're just like agnostic to the problem spaces. Like we can just basically come in with our knowledge of design thinking and come in and like solve problems. And I was just like, that's bananas (laughs) because there's people who have literally have PhDs in like this domain. And you're trying to say like, you can just parachute in and just like solve for this. I mean, in relation to like stop designing for Africa, like that's like the complete attitude that those like designers and technologists had when they were like design. I can't remember what it was called, but they were designing like a soccer ball that kids could kick around and generate electricity. And they like literally knew nothing about the communities that might be using this and not only that but like the product was bad it was like it didn't actually like the kids would have to kick around the ball for like a hundred years before like powering a light bulb or something (laughs) it's like a a black mirror episode gone wrong right you're for the black mirror in the book too and it's like can you just see these poor kids like kicking themselves into skeletons with this this soccer ball Right, exactly, because they're like meant to generate electricity. It's sustainable. And I don't think it's like necessarily like your positionality as a designer is not necessarily interrogated enough, like just in our field, like to actually be engaged in the kinds of problem solving we want to be engaged or we should be engaged in. And I think I talk a little bit about how you know, there's that there's that saying, nothing about us without us. And I think that really holds true in the design space. Like you need to have representation on your team 
within your organization if you're going to be, you know, quote unquote, problem solving for people within certain spaces. And so that's something like try to emphasize like within my own practice is like this idea of like, we need to have people like from the communities for whom and with whom we're designing in order to be able to kind of like think about these problem spaces in a, with a systems oriented lens. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me how something that seems so just basic, basic in the sense of common sense, mm-hmm. can be met with such opposition. Yes. <laughs> on the other side, because I mean, I think now we're in full-throated opposition mode, right? Where, you know, George Floyd is gone. Ain't nobody thinking about that no more, right? In the sense that all of, you can see the full-on attack on all things around diversity, representation, whatever language you want to use. The idea is that, look, we're done with that. (laughs) Yeah. It's actually like the blowback is like, is blown back hard. And it's just like, I was told on one of my projects, you're not supposed to use like the word equity because that like sort of sets off some policymakers. And I was just like, what? Like this whole project is oriented around (laughs) increasing equity. Like how exactly were we have going, like how can we navigate that? And so I think it's just, yeah, I mean, that's something to consider. I mean, I think that is actually kind of like a causal loop that we need to address. Like, so concept in systems thinking is like creating causal loops. So like understanding how problems and solutions feed back into each other and that it creates this dynamic. And so, you know, like a good balancing causal loop is like a thermostat. So it's like, oh, you want the room to be 72 degrees, the heat kicks on. It reaches 72 degrees, the heat kicks off. And then that just kind of like balances itself as represented in a circle. And Peter Senge, who wrote The Fifth Discipline, it's like, it's about systems thinking and organizational change management. I think he wrote in the 80s or something. He said that today's problems were yesterday's solutions. I'm paraphrasing. And that's a good sort of mindset to have when you're engaged in systems thinking is like nothing that you're going to be creating right now or designing or, you know, whatever quote unquote solutions you come up with, they're going to create their own problems. And so you're either need going to need to anticipate that or like figure out how to mitigate potential problems that those new solutions could create. And so that's like a really like important thing to acknowledge and, you know, that applies to sociocultural things like the blowback and political things like the blowback that we're currently experiencing, for example, with within education and sort of like the blowback to like the demands for racial justice. I think in a way, it's like you can expect that to happen. I think you could and you should, right? Yeah. Like the rallies were still in the street and in my mentality and those among my friends and in, in and our chats together was like, look, this ain't gonna last long, uh-huh. right? Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> corporate largesse toward being, you know, engaged around diversity or equity or whatever. Again, whatever language you want to use, we got a small window in which to extract something from this that's going to be a net positive, right? If anything, I would say the window slams shut quicker than I anticipated, but you know. I can always count on certain things. So I did count on the window closing. I just <laughs> thought maybe we had another year. 
Um, <laughs> clearly, that was not the case. Um, They're speeding um, up the timeline. <laughs> oh, man. The timeline is faster than it's ever been, right? So maybe we're in a more meme culture, right? Everything's happening <laughs> happening faster. So I, I think like when you talk about causal loops in my <laughs> I think their causal loop is like, okay, these these folks talking too much. How do we get how do we get them to shut the fuck up? <laughs> right. Like, can I just go about my business uninterrupted? I do not want to think about this anymore. Did we solve that? <laughs> So I like wonder what like the white thermostat is for like silence. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's getting too loud in here. (laughs) Absolutely. We need to turn the volume down. It's like when you have like an audio and and you see it like tipping into red, you know, (laughs) when they see like too many black people, too many brown people, too many women, too many queer start to tip, tip into that red. They're like, oh. Yeah. Got turned. Got turned the volume down on this. Time to start cutting some funding. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> it's time to time to start focusing on critical race theory. Exactly. <laughs> or that other sticky one, you know, corporate priorities. Right. You know. Yeah. These are these are tough economic times, and so in these tough economic times, we need to rethink our corporate priorities. Like, damn, ain't y'all been eating high off the hog for the past 15, 20 years with record profits? <laughs> now they're done with us. <laughs> but you know, that's an important element, right? Kind of yeah. knowing, anticipating that to me shouldn't be difficult if you know history, right? Like reconstruction is a useful, a useful tool. <laughs> yeah, it is really interesting. Just like, I think that's why part of like the systems thinking mindset is really trying to understand power and power dynamics and where power lies and what people like powerful people are incentivized by, because that will tell you a lot about like why things work the way they do. And so yeah, I was thinking, for example, like I think a couple of weeks ago in the news, have you heard about this app that I think like they designed for migrants to make their like sort of immigration appointments? Like it's just I didn't I didn't hear about that, but Yeah, you can imagine. Like this thing is not working. <laughs> that sounds strangely suspicious. Yeah. So it's like you're a migrant who's crossed the border, you're an asylum seeker, basically. And like The idea is like, okay, now go to this app to like make your appointments and like, you know, like ICE is using it. And it's just, I I mean, it's so predictable. Like, of course, the app doesn't work. It can't like handle the volume of appointment requests. I was reading this story about how one lady was in, you know, like a migrant camp in Texas had to make an appointment in Arizona and find her way there. Like, it's just bonkers. And like, also like what this says is this tells you a few things. Like if you think about it as an iceberg, right? Like if you're like the app, what we see is this app is not working properly. Beneath that are just like all of the patterns, all of the infrastructure questions. Like this is not a priority. They're not, you know, actually spent funding this in a way to make it effective. And then at the bottom of the mental model is like, yeah, these are people who are low on their governmental decision makers, low on their priority in terms of like problem solving for them or helping to make this process easier. My first thought instantly goes to the Looney Tunes, right? Where it just sounds like something like Wiley e. Coyote would come up with. 
I'm not trusting you, right? Like if you're the roadrunner, you do not trust Wally Coyote to give you the app that's going to help you like run faster through the desert, right? Like that's just not what you do. And if I'm a migrant, I'm not giving information to like ICE or or anything quasi-governmental in my movements. Like I just wouldn't trust it because I don't think those people are meant to do you any good. Well, I think I think people will get it though. It's it's just my way of saying I don't trust these people. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a pretty useful hack. Just don't trust them, right? And when you're designing in these these systems, I think people know that or hopefully they will they'll know that. But that gives us a chance to talk about two things I wanted to get to, which is ethics, how centered our ethics in these conversations, because oftentimes it seems like they're coming in at the tail end rather than at the beginning. That's a really good question. I mean, one of the things that prompted me to really actively use systems thinking in my design practice was basically like the ethics of it all within technology. Yeah. And I tell a story about this in the beginning where, you know, I'm talking to a client team and they, I'm talking about Black Mirror and how there's like cautionary tales within Black Mirror. And one of the clients is like, okay, yeah, that sounds really good. Like, can we add that to a sticky note in terms of like a potential feature? And I was just like, these people do not get it. I think they need to be thinking about like the ethical implications of, you know, what they're creating. And that stems from this source of like, techno-optimism that I think sort of like permeates the industry. And yeah, in terms of like thinking about unintended consequences, I don't even know that you need to be necessarily talking about ethics as a concept. I think it's really we need to grapple with like, what are the potential consequences of the things that we're creating and how will it affect people for whom we didn't really kind of think about or intend to affect or have an impact on. And so I think there's a techno optimism in the industry, like especially because like I've done a lot of work in the technology space. And what I find is that the ethics piece is really hard to grapple with because I think there's this assumption that the things that we're creating, like especially like emerging technologies are fundamentally good and that we should, you know, progress with them, sort of like potential consequences be damned. And so I think it's interesting because as a consultant, I've had to work with teams where they are supposed to be kind of thinking about the ethics of it all. And it's just like such a hard conversation to have with them explicitly because I don't know. I've literally been called before like, oh, these are kind of like a bummer. These conversations are kind of a buzzkill. <laughs> can you like not can we not talk about that piece? Can we talk about like all of the opportunities and like the good things that this new technology might might result in? And it's funny because I include a couple of tools that I worked on in the book when I'm talking about unintended consequences. And they're meant to expand your thinking about pretty big things like algorithmic injustice and like how different people might be ignored or different groups might be ignored within the products that you're designing, as well as like 
what's the environmental impact of what you're designing? And these tools, there's one that I worked on at my last company called the Tarot Cards of Tech. And then there's another one that I worked on with a Midyar network called the Ethical Explorer. Mm-hmm. And these are like fun little toolkits that you use kind of like as a, you know, kind of like a game with your stakeholders. And what I found is like by having this entry point that felt like non-threatening, we were able to have those conversations about ethics, which was, you know, it seems like such a trivial thing, but creating an experience that is like, oh, this is like a fun little thing and not necessarily like this buzzkill conversation that we're going to have about how we're going to do all sorts of harm, at least in the tech sector, was like a pretty good entry point. Nobody wants to talk about like the unintended consequences of what they're going to be doing. Although you can force that conversation by saying, yeah, do you want to be a headline? Do you want to be the next Facebook, you know, causing harm? And so that sometimes works as well. But yeah, I think it's a big aspect of adopting a systems thinking mindset is thinking about the potential unintended consequences of what you're doing. Yeah. And and unintended consequences are a bummer. Right. Like, yeah, <laughs> to the extent that we that we want to use that language. I don't know. It, and, and this is where it's it's interesting, I think, when you embody certain spaces. Right. And I'm not going to speak for every like black and brown person because, you know, famously, your color ain't always your kind. Right. Like there's yeah. Clarence Thomas and Tim Scott. Right. Like they, they declare examples of the ones that be trying to tell on everybody else. Right. When we ready to cut some throats. They the first ones raising the alarm, right? So, so that's nothing new. That's been around from from the beginning of time. Those who are like traitors to the cause. <laughs> but I think when you embody certain experiences or or backgrounds, you know, you can't help but think of of unintended consequences, right? Because right. you're, I don't know. It's, it's like kind of when I was making the joke about the the app earlier. Like I'm always looking at something with the critical eye because I can't really trust these folks, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, when when they start talking about, oh, we're going to build like tech cities in, in Toronto oh, yeah. and smart cities, and all this kind of, I'm like, nah, nah, Jack. I don't, I don't need- <laughs> I know where this is going. <laughs> yeah, I don't need more eyes on me, right? <laughs> like, enough's enough, right? And I think when tech is so obsessed with knowing where you are, like from their perspective, it's to sell you things, right? Like they want to have this, like, you know, I think about Minority Report as he's like fleeing from the police and he walks into the gap and they're like, so good to see you, sir. Like, welcome <laughs> back. And it's like the new eyes and they call him like Mr. Makamoto or something, right? <laughs> and um, like, they love that aspect of it, right? Like, oh, look how clever we are. We can put ads everywhere. But you know, when you come from radical spaces where your movements have been policed or where your social movements are under attack, all that surveillance ain't ain't cool. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think it's funny because like, who is I? I was having a conversation with someone the other day and we were talking about, do you remember those like Boston Dynamics videos where those- Oh yeah, those robots. Yeah, the robot dogs and stuff like that. Back when they were releasing a lot of videos, I don't know if they like are still like releasing all these videos. I remember I would be working like in the consultancy where I was working. It's like, you know, we had a lot of like white male developers and, you know, you'd hear about like, oh, there's a new Boston Dynamics video. 
and you know you plan to like gather around and watch it and people's reactions were at it felt like extreme ends if you were one of these like white male developers it's like wow this is so cool this can have like so many applications if you're like a person of color like sitting there watching this you're like no <laughs> these yeah. things are out to get us <laughs> yeah. it's horrifying these are right. horrifying this is actually you know like this watching this is my black mirror and that shows you how problematic it is when you don't have like diverse teams working on this stuff because they don't fundamentally come to the table if you've had nothing but like really good experiences with robotic technologies or you haven't experienced the receiving end of surveillance in a way that you know is harmful to you then that's not the first thing you're going to think about when you're like developing these new technologies and so and that that's the piece of optimism right it's easy whether it's tech optimism or something else right because if you're the average joe schmo white person your interaction with police has probably been pretty good right so you don't have a reason to fear them right because i i've seen white people do shit to police where i'm like what <laughs> like it's it's incomprehensible to me and i could imagine a lot of crazy shit and i've just seen like do you just go to the average like concert that's like kind of a heavily white person concert or like a hockey game or like the celtics are in town something really white <laughs> you know and i have watched I have watched white people talk to police, men and women, like with that kind of like, they're like, hey, move, move it along, buddy. Who do you think you're talking to, man? You know, they're pointing the finger and shit. Like, right. like give me your badge number, sir. I pay your salary out of my taxes. So take that, buddy. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm like, you are the bravest, <laughs> drunkest human. The I've drunkest, ever yeah. Also, not even coherent and <laughs> like feeling like they can do that. Oh, man. St. Patrick's Day, I literally Ugh. watched. And I'm not, and I'm not even lying. Like, first of all, St. Patrick's Day is a day that's the most anti black holiday in the world. I know. I don't even go was, into the city on St. Patrick's Day. I know. I was going to say, it's like, it gives, it gives license for white people to just like wild out like i don't even leave the house <laughs> if i don't have to leave the house on saint patrick's day it's like if this was like an old 1880s movie you see all the black people like shuttering their shuttering their windows <laughs> closing the gates <laughs> like let's all stay in <laughs> until the darkness has passed that's saint patrick's day <laughs> but for some reason i was in saint patrick's day and i literally watched a drunk white dude throw up on a cop's shoes what throw up on these cop shoes and all that dude did was like oh you had one too many as he like kicked the vomit off i was like serious? i'm not i'm not kidding i instantly went down into the subway wasn't even my turn <laughs> and i was like, like i'm out of here bye <laughs> i'm out of here <laughs> so <laughs> That is wild. When you have that mentality, you, you're not afraid of anything. So anything that could be used in like law enforcement to you is just a benevolent part of society. Right, right. You know, for the rest of us, that's like, mm -mm, nah, can't trust that. <laughs> yeah, you think about it a certain way when you know, like, the police have a monopoly on violence. Yes, yes, they do. Yeah, there's a lot of people who have never experienced that. And so that's not the way they kind of think about that dynamic, about that power dynamic. 
again, like back to power dynamics, like that, that is fundamental to, again, like that designer positionality or, you know, whatever practitioner positionality. I think we're seeing it in more subtle ways as well. Kind of like, yeah, for example, everybody's talking about AI and like large language learning models. And I see the difference in how people like talk about it, right? Like if you are part of like that white dominant culture, like you are going to be like, I can see the utility in this, or I can see like how this can be game changing. And I've literally seen panels, like I was at South by Southwest, the education conference, and I was like, oh, some of these panels where it's just basically white male technologists, they're like, oh my gosh, this has so much potential. And are we're literally unable to field questions about potential like social injustices that might occur. Like what are the unintended consequences of this? And could not talk about what any potential unintended consequences are. So that's a problem because there will be consequences that you did not anticipate nor intend, especially if you're one of those people on those panels. And when they think about consequences, their consequences, like, you know, they had this whole like, grandfather or godfather of AI, this Google guy that they've been talking about. Lately. Oh, yeah. You know, he's been in the press. And I'm like, yo, fuck that guy, right? Not, <laughs> not because of, of the creation of AI, right? But just more about their unintended consequences be so off the fucking charts. Yeah, right. That they're ridiculous, right? But then your actual lived experience consequences, they don't want to talk about. Yeah, that's so true with with emerging technologies. They're like, there's going to be a general AI. It's going to be sentient. It's going to like take over the earth. No, this is going to be used. How is this going to be used by the police tomorrow? How is it going to be used by the police tomorrow? How is it going to be used for testing, right? And how is that going to create bigger gaps in education? If we're talking about these are still high stakes things, but it's just it's either already happening now or it's going to happen tomorrow. That thing becoming sentient, it is literally just predicting what word comes next is so far off that it's almost an injustice to hear about that as a consequence at this point. And they don't even know what being sentient means. Right. <laughs> Right. Like, that, you know, like, seriously, that's where I take it. Like, people are like, oh, these things are going to be, they're going to start thinking. I'm like, you don't even know how to think. <laughs> like, we don't really know how our brain works. Like, we think we do, but no, we don't. Like, we don't know how any of this shit works. Not to get really philosophical, but fuck it. We got a little bit of time left, so I'm going to get philosophical. We barely understand truly what life means, right? We get it, but we don't. We don't really know how we absorb information because people are like, oh, I fell in love. It hurts my heart. Like, yeah, that's just a physical manifestation. But people would say that's not even real. How do we know, right? So, like, you can't do that as a human being. You don't even understand your own fucking feelings. You're going to tell me that this thing is going to become alive? Like, stop it. Like, you sound like a crazy person. It's like people talking about going to Mars. Like, here's a clue. You ain't never going to Mars. Ever. Also, like, that's a whole other thing. The making plans to go to Mars is just to escape the rest of us. <laughs> like, that is, that's why it's a fantasy. The way we describe it right now, like, it's just like a good mimic of what people already do and say, like, it's just based on this, like, training data, it's not going to, yeah, like you're saying, like, it's not going to start thinking. Like, that's just what we should be worried about is, like, how is this going to increase inequality? 
And how how is this right now being used for capitalist purposes that, I mean, frankly, kind of stupid and going down like the same path is being used for advertising right now on Bing. And like that's what the world needs now is more right. bad copy. You know, we need more bad words and bad ideas and bad takes. <laughs> right. It's like I have the New York Times op-ed piece for that. There's so much of <laughs> Right. Like. If I want to read shit things, I can just easily go there. I need more shit things to read. Yeah. Like, enough. Is it, does it Barry Weiss still exist? Do I need a, another version of her in like chat GPT of stupid ideas? <laughs> <laughs> so all these things are, are funny to me. They make me laugh. They're kind of all right. part of the experience. But they're but they're important. It's like we can laugh and joke and 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 do all the rest of it. But they are important, and it's critical that we do the hard work to kind of push back against these notions. And I think as a designer, as a thinker, you're you're keen. You're a keen part of the conversation, and that's why I was so excited to have you on the show because we do need to using the book title close these loops. And and better understand things. In the time we have left, I want to get to the drop. I've not been doing Off the Dome lately. I don't know. I've been wrestling with it. And it, it hasn't been a segment that that I felt have, you know, I've been having such long conversations with folks that by the time I get there, I'm like, fuck, I don't want to waste more time. <laughs> so I've, I've just been going to the drop. Um, and the drop is anything at all that we could share um, with my listeners. It can be more than one drop, but no pressure to have more than one. And my drop is actually a, a stand-up on Netflix by Shen Wang, and it's called Sweet and Juicy. And it is so fucking hilarious. And I want to give a, a shout out to a friend of mine who's actually one of the folks that I recommended your book to, um, Sanjay Khanna, because he turned me on to this latest Netflix special. And the minute I saw it, I was like, yo, this dude is like a new Mitch Hedberg. <laughs> like he has the same kind of mannerisms and takes. And so if, if folks haven't watched this special, watch it. It is super funny. And it shows that you can be funny and not be a dick. And too many comedians are relying on this being an asshole routine. I'm looking at you, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle, because they're laughing. <laughs> Chris Rock in particular, your last special was trash. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my drop. Oh my God. You know, I saw Chris Rock a couple years ago and I was like, I cannot relate to this person anymore. Like, he's just like a rich dude. And old. And old. Yes. And he's and he's not much older than me, but I'm like, dude, your comedy right now is you you sound like how old I thought Red Fox was right? <laughs> when Sanford and Son was on TV. Like Red Fox was like 45. And that dude he's, looked like he was 85 right. years old. He looks so old. He looks so old. <laughs> yeah, he's not much older than me, but I was just, this just, yeah, this just sounds old. It sounds out of touch. Insufferable. All he was talking about is his wife, like. And his daughter, when he was talking about his daughter, I was like, and how like, oh, she's a rich black girl and skiing and shit. I was like, dude, <laughs> you sound like an asshole. <laughs> and like, if I'm like, if that's your daughter and that's her personality, that's on you, motherfucker. <laughs> Cause she sounds like an asshole too. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, dude, that none of that shit's funny. I did not, I did not watch a special because I was like, 
yeah <laughs> yeah it is not it is not good and i'm a chris rock fan and i thought this mo- this most recent like the one before that tambourine mm-hmm. was actually good all right <laughs> but this one this most recent one garbage <laughs> like complete and utter garbage but anyway you're up just riding off that slap i guess um yeah, exactly <laughs> his head's still reeling <laughs> all right i have I'm trying to think like I have a couple of things. One is I recommend this book a lot is Gia Tolentino's book, Trick Mirror. She is she writes for The New Yorker a lot of the time. She is you see her sometimes like commenting on like, okay, one thing she commented on because she's written brilliantly about this is one of those like fire festival documentaries. And yeah, yeah. yeah, she has a piece in that book about just all the scams the story of this generation and like nine scams and i'm like this is one of the most like american things i've ever read yeah she talks about fire festival in that one too which is i think that is such a good example of like how americans are just like scammers <laughs> just like grifters you know i have i have such a different take on fire festival you do i, wanna, I do can i hear it yeah, it's very briefly. Like, okay. You know what? I, I, I've watched both documentaries. Okay. Right? <laughs> so did I. <laughs> and I honestly don't think that, like, to me, a grifter or a scammer is someone who is literally setting out to not deliver what they promised. Yeah. Okay. And there's a there's a part in it where they thought they had financing from, like, some bank or something. I can't remember, like, Bank of America or some somebody was going to give them money. $2 million that was going to kind of really get the shit off the ground. And they didn't get that. And then I think the whole rest of it was trying to like cobble the shit together to the last minute, like change the location, do this, do that, <laughs> do this, true. do this. That's true. But, but I honestly feel like if the dude had gotten the money, I think he would have delivered on what he, if, if the money was enough, right? Like I think he, I don't think he would have took money from JP Morgan and just absconded with it. Right, right, right. He would have done the festival. Yeah, I think he would have done the festival, right? But by the time it just kept like, oh, I'm not, I, I, we might have it. We could, let's. <laughs> and then it just all fell apart. So they were like, yo, here's some mayonnaise sandwiches. Yeah, the mayonnaise trapped, sandwiches. And you just trapped on the beach, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think he would have delivered that had he got the money. Yeah. Okay. I think I can agree with that. Like, like he wouldn't have just like take, he would have like delivered something better. Oh yeah. But I think he probably couldn't have just because I think he was just like so arrogant. He just thought he could pull this off. He didn't have to talk to the government in the Bahamas or anything. (laughs) That's white people. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So I was like, okay, this dude is just white manning. (laughs) Yeah. 100%. 100%. So to the extent that that maybe that's the ultimate grift. Yeah. Right? I was just going to say like, yeah, that's maybe that's like so many startup founders, right? Like selling really? their selling their idea to a VC is basically a grift. The massive grift. Um, <laughs> so anyway, not to not to distract from my recommendation because I have I have two of them, I think. Mm-hmm. So one is Gia Tolentino's book. She's just writes really smart about like pop culture. I also always recommend her because she's like Filipino woman, just like me. I just love to like support that. The other thing I recommend is I don't know many people who've 
read this, but there's kind of this famous writer from the 1800s from the Philippines called Jose Rizal. And he's oftentimes talked about as like the national hero. And he wrote this piece, this essay called The Indolence of the Filipino. And it totally changed my mindset about certain things because what it was about the Spanish colonists and they had this view of the Filipinos as lazy. And basically what he writes about in The Indolence of the Filipino is how they weren't lazy. This is actually a way of their lack of desire to work and to like work their asses off was actually a way of sticking it to the man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's just like you see this perception that certain people are lazy, they're not doing the work. I see this all the time in education. Like I've literally heard teachers say like my students my students are lazy. And you're just like you just don't know how to relate to your students and they're just not going to be doing the work for the sake of doing the work because of your authoritarianism. And so it's something that I think about a lot in terms of like power dynamics and how oftentimes rest is resistance. And so, yeah, yeah, I really recommend that essay as one of like the old essays kind of uh, bringing about that idea. Those are wonderful drops. And and I love that because it's a it's a tool of organizers all the time. Right. Like union Mm -hmm. organizers, like throw throw your tools in the in the wheels of the machine. That's right? right. Shut that shit down. That's right. And rest is radical, right? I'm a big believer in that. You don't owe these people anything. (laughs) You don't owe these people anything. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we should always remember that. Yeah. I think all of our communities, you know, those that don't come from mainstream communities know that when you know you're getting taken advantage of and you're underpaid and overworked, you find ways to hack that shit. Yeah, that's right. Right? That's right. You know, you're like, (laughs) they ain't going to pay me anyway. Punch me out. Right. (laughs) I'm out of here. My weekend has begun. <laughs> He's like, yo, man, you know it's you know it's only 4:30. Yo, man, punch me out. <laughs> resistance. resistance. It's resistance. It's resistance. Cheryl, this has been a wonderful conversation. We had a lot of laughs. Even before we started recording, we had some laughs. I know. Um, <laughs> the book again, closing the loop, systems thinking for designers. And this was wonderful. I loved having this conversation with you. Yeah, same. I loved all the topics you brought up. We heard about Wally Coyote. We heard about <laughs> Louis C.K., maybe unfortunately, but we yeah. heard about it. <laughs> um, yeah, I really appreciated it. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.